Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. The increasing application of the CRISPR technique to gene editing has revived debate about the use of genetic engineering in crops and farming. In March 2018, the U.S. Department for Agriculture signaled that it had no plans to regulate plants developed through such new techniques, where the results could have been developed by traditional breeding techniques. A few months later, the European Court of Justice decided that any organisms altered by gene editing techniques would be subject to the same strict regulation as GMOs. Brexit allows the UK to diverge from European rules, and genetic editing seems like one of the first areas in which divergence is being pursued, and at some pace. At the beginning of January, seven days after Brexit, DEFRA opened a consultation on changes to regulation in this area. On the 29th of September, in a move that rather hints which way it's leaning, it announced that scientists wishing to conduct field tests of genetically engineered crops would no longer need to submit a risk assessment. Two weeks later, the government approved the first trial of genetically edited wheat by Rothamsted Research in a field in Hertfordshire. Rapid progress or dangerous bravado? To help us pick through the issues, I have two esteemed guests with contrasting views, who I hope they won't mind me saying have been part of this debate for quite a few years. Patrick Mulvaney is an agriculturalist and member of the Food Ethics Council, and Professor Nick Talbot is Executive Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory. Welcome to the bunker, Nick. Thank you. Good to be here. And welcome, Patrick. Very nice to be with you. Thank you. Right. Shall we start with just a really basic explainer? for our listeners. So Nick, can you tell us what is gene editing? So gene editing is a technology that enables the DNA sequence of, uh, of an organism to be changed. So, uh, and we can do that in a precise manner. So we can find a gene or a sequence and alter that to the desired uh, sequence. And it, it contrasts really quite a lot with gene modification Gene modification generally has been used as a way to describe the introduction of a new gene into an organism, sometimes from the same species, sometimes from a different species. But, but the introduction of new DNA, a new gene, a new function into an organism. And the difference with gene editing is it is changing an existing gene to a different form. So it, it has different characteristics. And this is why people are quite excited about uh, genome editing in, in the field of medicine, where it has the, the capacity to alter genes which are 
deleterious, which which of course cause problems, and correct those changes, which uh, which could affect some heritable disorders or could be used as a means of addressing some uh, some long term chronic disorders. So so genome editing is a, is a very powerful technique to make those approaches. It's very powerful in terms of of research and and enabling us to understand. Uh, the functions of genes too. But that's, that's uh, in a nutshell, the, the difference between the two techniques. Okay, so Patrick, would you broadly agree with that? So it, it's, um, I think I'd like to start by saying how amazing the science is and what incredible progress has been made. I mean, back in the day, under Professor Sir Hans Krebs, in biochemistry a long time ago. We were fiddling around with, with chromosomes and so forth and trying to do little experiments here and there. And now it's possible to sequence whole genomes very quickly. It's possible to understand what's in the DNA of many living beings, mm. including ourselves. And we have a, an incredible ability now uh, in science to understand better what's happening in the genes. As we witnessed during the pandemic, which was effectively an exercise of sequencing the, the gene and finding a, a genetic solution to it. Exactly. And we'll come back to this, I think, in, in, in a minute, because knowing about all of this is very helpful, I think, for us, for human beings, and potentially for the rest of the, uh, the environment, I hope. Nick, what are off-target effects and what is chromosomal mayhem? because those two frightening sounding things are at the at the center of resistance to the concept so off target effects are where with a genome editing technology you have the desired edit the desired change but at a lower rate you can actually see some off target effects and you can screen for those by sequencing the genome to see whether they exist and you will generally select variants which have zero or as close to zero effects as, as you can get. And of course, you can tell what the effects of those changes would be by monitoring. So you can do all of this by, by sequencing. I think the thing that's important to say, of course, is that every time we selectively breed anything naturally, we get many, many of target effects. In fact, part of the the skill, the real skill of being a plant breeder is to deal with all those off-target effects. The fact that we get off-target effects initially from screening for a variant that you want, and then you find it has a trait that you don't want. But even when that hasn't been the case, the, the background mutation rate is happening all the time and producing off-target effects. So in some ways, of course, it's important to talk about off-target effects, and it's important for us to do everything we can to mitigate against them. But we shouldn't be under the impression that off-target effects are something that only happens through this technology. In fact, they happen at a very, very much lower frequency using this technology than they would happen by conventional breeding technology. I understand that. But using traditional techniques, this is something that would take a very long time and many generations of breeding a, a particular variety of plant. While when you genetically edit, it happens instantly in the next crop you plant in a field. And so I would pose as a counter-argument to what you're saying that the opportunities to counteract those off-target effects are not the same if you're breeding a tomato plant through many, many generations for a particular colour or a particular resistance to disease. Nick, can you give us a, a sort of whistle-stop tour of the precautionary principle? Because this, again, is a really important concept that's at the centre of this debate. 
Well, the precautionary principle is is something that's applied very broadly to the development of new technologies, and it's been a sort of guiding principle in terms of regulation. And I'd say that's particularly true in, in the European Union. And it's essentially saying that the burden of proof necessary for the introduction of any new technology should be higher than on something which is existing, and that one should always act on the, on the basis of wanting to know what any unforeseen processes would be. In principle, I've got no problem with the precautionary principle. You know, I think all of us as consumers, we want to be protected from, from new innovations. We want that in the, in the medical sphere and particularly on the introduction of new medicines and on new technologies. I would say that where the precautionary principle has been criticized is because sometimes there hasn't been what I'd call a balancing innovation principle, a realization that innovation sometimes has really important potential benefits which need to be balanced against precaution and risk. And I think, say, this is where I know that the European Union has been criticised and the, 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 the over-dependence on the precautionary principle has been criticised. And I suppose the point I would make at this point is something I suspect that Patrick and I really, really do agree on, which is that we really do need to do something about farming and about food production in the face of the climate emergency. So I think that the point I'd like to introduce it really now is, is that we can talk about the precautionary principle, but we have to look at the fact that there is an existential threat to humanity, which is the climate emergency. And the status quo in agriculture cannot be maintained. We have to make difficult decisions and we have to innovate. We can't stop innovating in agriculture because we have to feed a growing world population and we've got to do it in a way which is not going to require fossil fuels. So I would say that you've got to set aside things like the precautionary principle in the context in which we find ourselves, which is an existential threat to humanity. Hmm. Patrick, I suspect you want to jump in here. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd just like to go back one step, the off target and so forth. One of the things about traditional breeding, and I'm not talking about high-tech breeding, I'm talking about traditional breeding, that which has been practiced by food producers over, over millennia, is that, of course, in the populations and the varieties that they have developed and from which they select uh, seeds for the next crop, they're actually looking for off-target things in a sense. They're looking for, for changes which will enable those crops to adapt to new social requirements, new tastes, uh, new ecosystems, and, and so forth. You've got a situation where that change in the genetic makeup of crops is what has given us this myriad diversity. I mean, there are 7,000 species uh, which people use for, for in, in the food system, 100 or so only selected for the industrial food system. And of those, probably only four provide more than 50% of the calories in the industrial food system. But there is this vast array of, of variety that has been developed through the expertise and skill of peasant farmers over millennia. That is very different to the, the off-target effects which come from fiddling around with, with genes in, in a laboratory. But what's your response to the point that basically the rate of population growth and the rate of climate change means that we cannot rely at the moment on traditional techniques to develop through the next two millennia. We just don't have that time. Okay. okay. In terms of the existential crises, absolutely. I mean, you know, we are faced with a situation where through the development of industrial food production, uh, industrial food chains, vast monocultures, 
with genetically uniform varieties, livestock factories with genetically uniform animals, animals, where any kind of disease can run rampant. The technologies to deal with that already exist. Biodiverse agroecology has developed by farmers over centuries, over millennia, can deal with all of those things. It can deal with the need for production, uh, for improving biodiversity, for dealing with climate change to some extent by sequestering carbon, by not emitting uh, greenhouse gases in the same way as industrial production. So yes, we want innovation. The innovation we need is to see how we can move society away from dependence on industrial production to a more agroecological, perhaps more localized, more territorial food system. What needs to happen are two things. One, if gene editing is to develop further and is you know, for field, uh, field trials and release into the environment and the food system, we need to think about regulation. Maybe we could talk about that in, in a minute, sure. what type of, type of regulation. And the second thing is, for all the emphasis in the global research system, which, by the way, spends nearly half of its resources on one single crop, that's maize, quite a lot on rice as well, as I know Nick will know, an equivalent, if not more, needs to be spent on being able to enable the outscaling of agroecology and more biodiverse food system and get us off the industrial food system treadmill. Nick, presumably to flip that, you don't think this should be a completely unregulated sphere. So you agree that there is some kind of regulation necessary for gene-edited plants and animals released into the environment and the food system. What do you think is the right balance um, I agree completely that there is so much that we can learn from agroecology and from biodiversity and, uh, and from organic farming practices. There is a lot that can be learned and a lot that actually has to be learned because if we're going to get the entire agricultural system off the chemical treadmill, if we're going to, and, and you've got to really think about that for a moment, that we've got to get the entire farming industry away from actually use of any fossil fuels. That means weaning them off the Harbour Bosch process by which they make nitrogen fertilizer. Mm-hmm uses you know five percent of natural gas supplies in the world away from using petroleum-based agrochemicals that's actually a big challenge and but i think we have to also address the fact that they have been very very effective at making the world a lot of food and therefore the technologies the way we actually replace that whilst embracing a lot of the things that we've learned in terms of agroecology we are going to need some really important new innovations and my sort of plea really is that the genetics is a really important part of that because actually you're going to do this by selective breeding anyway i would just say that genome editing and uh, and i would argue actually gene gene modification the ability to move genes across species boundaries is something we should have as part of the panoply of new innovations that are going to be necessary in agriculture if we're going to feed the world's growing population you know, we've got to feed 10 billion people by 2050. We actually are going to need a, a, a big increase in food production. And we need to do that on less land than now. So we actually need some degree of intensification. I think that we have to have 
regulation which looks at the variety and involves evolving our variety registration process to enable the substantial equivalence of foods to be tested effectively. So I would say that the regulatory burden has to be sufficient to allow consumer confidence. I think it has to build on our existing variety registration processes. But it is important that the bar is low enough that smallholder farmers to have access to these technologies. We need to have the plant breeding community at large to have access to these. So, so I see a, you know, a new genome edited trait as being something that can go into pre-breeding stocks and to be used in the development of varieties using conventional technologies. So I guess that the analogy I would say is something like the software industry, when through liberalization of coding, it spawned a huge influx of, of small companies to produce new apps. I would like to see that regulation leading to those types of new organizations entering the field. Because the other area I agree on Patrick with Patrick is that the agriculture is still dominated far too much by the big multinationals. But part of that is because the regulatory burdens have been so high that only those big companies have actually got the ability to traverse them. So we need a common sense approach to this that actually has a regulation that's clear, clear to the consumer, but is actually a sufficiently lower level to enable these traits to be available more widely to the whole plant breeding community. Can I just come back to uh, uh, some of the things that that Nick was saying? Indeed, I I think we we do both agree there needs to be fundamental changes, transformation of, of food systems. Maybe where we disagree slightly is that he doesn't necessarily see the need, as I do, for being able to get rid of these vast monocultures of genetically uniform plants, which are a breeding place for for disease and, and, and problems. And yes, we need to have food for everybody, but bear in mind that there are other ways of dealing with that other than increasing the productivity of genetically uniform monocultures. I mean, one is the amount of food that goes into livestock. I think it's about a third of arable land is, is used to produce feed for, for livestock. A lot of the destruction of the Amazon is because of the livestock industry and all of that going into genetically uniform livestock factories, which are, again, very, very much prone to disease. And we need to think about a land sharing approach where biodiversity, people, production happens all around us in our lived environment. Intensification of a few or at the moment, a very large amount, but but hopefully reducing amount of of land may indeed produce a a greater quantity of calories or whatever for the industrial food system, but won't necessarily deal with the food needs uh, of the population. So the philosophical objection for you is that genetic editing, at the moment, you see it being used as a tool to feed an already destructive addiction, as it were, of the world to a certain kind of food production which prevents us from looking at alternatives that we need to look to anyway. That is a fair interpretation of what I'm trying to say. And history shows us that if you reduce the regulation to too low a level, it will be grabbed by the most powerful. You know, already the, the, the patterns on uh, gene editing crops are focusing particularly on herbicide tolerance. Mm. Well, that's not very helpful to anybody. If you relax the regulation too far, 
it might allow the easier application of genome editing to produce gene drives that are designed to destroy populations, destroy species. Nick, there is something to that, isn't there? There is a suspicion, and in the light of how large companies have behaved in trying to patent even naturally occurring plants, it's a reasonable suspicion that the reason companies want to genetically engineer the best rice is not to feed the world, but to command a premium for selling it. It is to own the best rice. How how do you respond to that? You know, Unilever with tomatoes, Syngenta with broccoli. The European Patent Office has recently said that basically they're not going to do that. They're not going to allow companies to patent naturally occurring genetic sequences. So their response has been to create non-naturally occurring genetic sequences. And I think that what's necessary then is to have a regulatory regime which actually will select for that not to occur or to occur at reduced rate. I mean, the example I guess I would cite is the one you know of Argentina recently where they, they significantly adapted their regulatory regime to new breeding technologies. And they've already, that's already led to a shift in the landscape of technology developers, which are applying for product registrations. There's actually been a system that was really dominated by foreign multinationals to one where there's actually a significantly higher proportion of applications already from local companies, from public research organizations, from um, small and medium enterprises. So you've actually seen that effect. So I think there's much that we can learn from, from that. I think that we need to make sure that our regulatory environment is such that we really are allowing new innovations to come in and that we actually address the fact that we do need to make sure that we are safeguarding against those big multinationals. And again, I go back to the software industry. You know, that was certainly overturned in, in many ways by the sort of monoliths and became a much more vibrant environment by open source technologies. So, so I think there's much that we can learn from that. I don't have all the answers. I'm a scientist, not a regulatory mm-hmm, specialist. Mm-hmm. But, but there have been, I think the Horizon Council did a really good report on this recently. Yes, I read that. And I think there are things that we can learn to set the regulatory regime to actually address many of the concerns that, that people have that Patrick's voiced. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Patrick, to ask you a slightly more difficult question. For many years, it was neoliberal governments and big business that resisted environmentalism in general and the change it demanded. And now that it is becoming mainstream, is there a danger that environmentalists become bogged down in their own brand of conservative, of, of, of just resisting any kind of change just because it's it's new and there is a, a sort of... Uh, 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 sacrification of the environment going on. Are you swimming against the tide? Wouldn't it be better to concentrate on the right processes for making these things safe rather than just 
resisting them altogether, can this become a new nuclear energy thing that that tears you know the envir- environmental lobby in two? I think one thing one can say about the environmental movement and indeed the food movement, the food sovereignty movement, is that as much as there's resistance, there are proposals. And the world I live in is absolutely full of proposals of how to deal with food production, food availability, and and access to food. We are full of innovative ideas. There's no shortage of innovation. However, if so much resource and effort is put into, for example, genome editing, which could impact negatively on that other innovation process, then it's going to be very difficult to ensure that we get that full transformation of the food system towards that more biodiverse agroecological environment. In that environment, gene editing is not actually an issue that comes up in our conversations. What comes up is access to good quality land, land off which peasants were removed in order to put in monocultures. What comes up is, is the need to have much more biodiversity and lots of ecosystem functions within, within the environment, which can be provided by having very biodiverse polycultures. But come back to the regulation thing. The most important thing, I think, in regulation is indeed to be able to regulate the process, to know that the product has come from a process of genetic engineering. And secondly, that there is full transparent traceability of any process or product from genetic engineering, something that enables neighbours of people who live near crops that may have been gene editing uh, to have an opinion, and also enables people who buy food to have an opinion and choose whether or not to to, to have it. So traceability is, is absolutely essential. Nick, do you accept that as a criticism that effectively the ten scientists basically are impatient people to get from A to B and that you need ethicists by the side of you saying how you get from A to B matters and what happens after B matters? Uh, yes, I, I accept that completely. I, I wouldn't want it to be any, any, uh, you know, any other way. Um, that's true in, in every sphere of science. I'm not sure I would characterize scientists as being impatient. I think that we look at the balance of evidence, we make an objective case for a technology, and then it is for policymakers and, um, and ethicists to actually work out how that can be applied. That applies to any branch of science, as, as it should here. I just think that the regulatory mechanism itself needs to be thought through very carefully so that we're not actually unnecessarily restricting the application of science, which by all of the measures that have been carried out so far, is safe. And therefore, you know, we need to we need to, to balance that and make sure that the regulatory burden is appropriate to the introduction of the technology, whilst weighing up the benefits, the fact that these could have enormous impacts on our ability to actually remove agrochemical interventions from farming, to have much, much lower input farming systems, and indeed to create the type of polycultures that Patrick's talking about. One of the huge advantages potentially of genome editing is you could actually have intercropping uh, being done within the same seed stock. So, you know, if you've got strong disease pressure on a field, the the way in which a, a smallholder farmer would deal with that 
traditionally is intercropping to try and lower the disease pressure to have different crops or or different varieties which he, they they have different resistances well if we know what those genes are the genes that actually are, are required to, to protect a crop against a certain uh, disease or a suite of different diseases we can actually produce a mixed seed stock where you've actually got what uh, is not a monoculture at all but a polyculture mm. with many many different genetic variants mm. all in the same field that of course depends on that small farmer being able to by that patented seed and while i understand your uh, your your hopefulness in this area i i have to point out that the history of the human race does not point in that direction you know malawi does not have the same lobbying power as unilever and so in that tussle unless the correct processes are put in place a priori in that tussle Unilever wins and Malawi gets screwed. That's just what happens. I mean, I don't necessarily mean Unilever, any large company. And I accept that, accept the fact that, you know, there, there are, there are a number, you know, there are examples out there. You look at the way that BT Brinjal has, uh, has actually really affected the livelihoods of smallholder farmers in Bangladesh. You, you know, you look at what's happening now in Sri Lanka where they're, they're, Going, undergoing a very misguided experiment where they're actually removing interventions and that's having a dramatic effect on the livelihoods of smallholder farmers. You know, there are One can point to examples of where this has worked and where it hasn't worked. And again, I would just look outside of agriculture and look at what's happened in other industries and, and set the regulatory effect in an appropriate way. I'm not in favour at all of patenting any of these traits I'm certainly not against uh, certainly against patenting uh, genome edited traits. I would rather that uh, that we actually had the same uh, regime as in product registration, where the competition is based at the, the level of, mm. of varieties. My core expertise is as a scientist. I can tell you the type of things that could be possible using the science, but as the point you made is an important one. Of course, we need bioethicists and we need. Uh, regulators to consider these, but when they consider them, they need to consider the potential benefits, especially set aside, set against the uh, the threat to humanity from climate change, and make sure that we're doing all we can to introduce technologies that can make a difference. You have both, as I said, been part of this debate for a long time. So let me set you against your traditional vibe and ask this, Patrick: What do you think is the best argument? in support of a more relaxed regulation of genetically edited crops in Europe? So in the UK, of course, post-Brexit, um, and potentially uh, in Europe, but hopefully they will be uh, more resistant to it. Um, the, most, the most important uh, uh, thing to consider in this is not necessarily supporting the release or whatever, but is supporting a process which will be deliberative, inclusive, and able to really tease out the issues in a way that I'm afraid uh, DEFRA and uh, uh, Government Minister Eustace, George Eustace, singularly failed to do in their consultation this year. It's a really important issue mm. in one in which you need participatory technology assessment, one which considers the not just the technology itself, but also the wider environment, the alternatives that could produce similar, if not better, outcomes than the technology is proposing. You're saying that relaxed regulation is a trust exercise, effectively 
you you have to be able to trust that the process is transparent and that the the government is really listening to a broad range of voices rather than going through a box ticking exercise in order for regulation to be more relaxed in effect correct and that it may become more relaxed or not uh, depending on the outcome of that process but let me just say one final thing the science is brilliant I think what people are able to do and, and able to see is, is is wonderful. What we need is to retain that good science, particularly in order to be able to detect gene editing traits in the foods that we have, and particularly those which we import, in order to protect our population and our environment and our biodiverse agricultural systems. Mm. Okay. And Nick, finally, the reverse to you. If you had to make an argument for the US regime, which is quite relaxed at the moment, to be more robust, what are the areas in which you would make it more robust? Is there anything that worries you in the approach, plant it and see? The only thing that worries me um, has been the fact that regulation in some ways has actually not had the desired effect because it's it's limited the application of these technologies to big multinationals. It's actually been a way of stifling innovation. That really worries me. It's actually the unforeseen consequences. I'm in favor of anything that will promote consumer confidence and ensure that we have a safe and nutritious food supply. And in that, I don't think I'd be any different than any consumer. That's what we all want. So I want any regulatory regime to be able to assure me as a consumer that that's the case. And I demand no less from you know the biomedical sphere. I just don't like the idea that this is all being looked at really through a very sort of myopic view, really. And also there are there are lots of inherent absurd positions. Most of the members of the environmental movement queuing up to have a genetically modified product injected in them because it will safeguard against COVID. You know, we've got genetic modification affecting almost all of our major medicines are, are, are in some sense genetically modified. And obviously, we've got a regulatory regime there that people trust. I would like us to have one that people trust in terms of our food supply, because the technologies, and I would include genetic modification in this, which has you know been safely consumed by 350 million people for more than 25 years with no adverse effects and no legal cases in the most litigious society on the planet. I would argue that under those circumstances, we really need to have a fresh look at all of our genetic technologies, especially in the fact that we face such an enormous existential threat to humanity. We have to do things and we have to do them rather quickly if we're going to safeguard humanity from the climate emergency. Nick Talbot, Patrick Mulvaney, thank you so much for helping me and our listeners through this uh, epistemological and ethical maze. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And thanks, Patrick, for the discussion, which I've enjoyed. Thanks, Alex. A very interesting conversation. I appreciate the the robustness and, and, and candor of, of Nick, and uh, we'll look forward to future conversations. Remember, there's a new bunker daily on Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday mornings. You'll start the week supplement on Mondays and a longer weekly full panel episode every Tuesday. So don't forget to subscribe, review, and rate us. From Eve to Frankenstein, from Prometheus to every Marvel supervillain, the anxiety that the quest for progress might unleash something uncontrollable and destructive is ancient and deep-rooted, but that makes it neither unreasonable nor lacking in examples. As Norwegian historian Lange observed, 
There is no servant more useful than technology and no master as dangerous. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alexandreou. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Thank you.